Oh, hello, friends, and welcome to Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast, where we talk all things collection development, reader's advisory and reference, right into your earbuds. I'm Susan McGuire, coming to you from Booklist Auxiliary HQ, aka my apartment, because we are still practicing safe COVID-era social distancing guidelines, which means that in-person social interaction is, like, super limited. And a lot of us have come up with really clever ways to (laughs) replace human interaction as part of our day. One of the things that I have been doing is rigging up an overly complicated computer setup so I can play Boggle with my brother and sister-in-law who live in California. I'm also trying to figure out a way that I can play the original Genus edition of Trivial Pursuit with them without sending them a box of cards because I don't want to break up the set. But I also feel very strongly that now is the time to test my brother's knowledge of Cold War era trivia. We have a complicated competitive relationship that I'm not going to get into now on this podcast or possibly ever. Okay, how about for fun, I ask you a question from the box of trivia. This is the original genus edition, Trivial Pursuit, going from the arts and leisure category, which of course is the brown chip. Here we go. What Neil Simon play tells the story of two retired vaudeville partners? Do you know it? Don't like cheat with Google because Google wasn't invented when this game came out. I'm going to tell you the answer at the end of this episode because I just really need ways to make things fun. Anyway, I know I am not alone in rediscovering the social pleasures of playing board games, so maybe you're thinking about how you can bring that joy back to your library. Maybe you want to add to your board game collection or beef it up. Well, I have great news for you. There are librarian experts to guide us, and I asked Rebecca Strang of the Naperville Public Library all kinds of questions about games and libraries and how that's going to work. Then, Books for Youth editor Sarah Hunter and I talked about a few of the books we've been reading and loving, which, speaking of games and books and websites and stuff, please remember that all of the information that we talk about will be available in the show notes, which you can find on booklistonline.com slash shelf hyphen care. Before we begin, here's a word from some friends. Say, do you like reading? Do you like hearing what authors have to say about their writing? then you've just got to hear the Shelf Care interview. It's a quick conversation between a book lister and a book person about their work, their inspiration, and whatever else we can fit in under 15 minutes. Hear Maggie Reagan talk to Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds about Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. Hear Ronnie Curry chat with Susan Mwadi Daraj and Simon Nurali about their series for young readers, Farah Rocks and Sadiq, or to Saba Tahir, Nicole Andelfinger, and Sonia Lau and their graphic novel, A Thief Among the Trees. Hear Julia Smith talk to Tracy Hecht about the Nocturnal series, and more. Can you believe there's more? You can find the Shelf Care interview right on this here podcast feed or wherever you listen to Booklist Shelf Care the podcast. Happy listening! Rebecca Strang is the co-host of the Playability podcast and the mind behind the website to playishuman.com. She's also a member of the board of directors of ALA's Games and Gaming Roundtable, and in her free time, she's a children's librarian at the Naperville Public Library here in Illinois. She and I spoke about International Games Week, some sure bet games for libraries, where to find reviews, and a little about cataloging and keeping track of all of those daggun pieces. She was really a delight to talk to, and the millions of resources she mentioned will be listed in the show notes, which you can find on booklistonline.com slash shelf care. Let's do it! 
So I am talking to Rebecca Strang, who is a children's librarian at the Neighborville Public Library and a member of the board of directors for ALA's Games and Gaming Roundtable. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Cool. All right. So let's talk about your background with games and with gaming and libraries specifically and, and what you do with games in Naperville. Sure. I've been a gamer longer than I've been a librarian. I started gaming a while ago, but I'm I'm currently a children's librarian with Naperville Public Library's 95th Street location. And we have a non-circulating board game collection there. And I also do a lot of our gaming programs. We run a Pokemon League and a game night, which is currently virtual, uh, not in person. Yeah. And doing our International Games Week activities. And then I'm also one of the members of the board of directors for the Games and Gaming Roundtable, where I'm on the program planning committee. So I help with organizing our presence at ALA's annual convention and any other conventions we might have a presence at. Yeah. You mentioned International Games Week, and this will come out the last week of October. Mm -hmm. And I think that's right before International Games Week. Yeah, International Games Week is going to run November 8th through the 14th this year. But given the state of the world right now, anybody who has an event in November can call it an International Games Week event this year. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. International Games Week is an initiative to get gaming into libraries and get people who like to game connected with libraries. So a lot of libraries will either run smaller events throughout the week or they'll have one big event the week of International Games Week. So the Games and Gaming Roundtable works with sponsors so that we can get items for giveaways so that we can send some games to libraries. This year, we're going to be featuring seven print and play games since a lot of people are going to be doing virtual events this year. So we want to spotlight different ways to game when you can't do it in person. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be featuring some of those print and play games, and we're going to be hosting a roundtable game night event as well. Fun. Yeah. (laughs) So have you talked to a lot of libraries about how they're transitioning these game programming to games programming virtually? Yeah, there's been a lot of chat in the group on Facebook. League of Librarian Gamers yeah. is the game, what? the game, the round table group on Facebook. So there's been a lot of chat there and on our Discord server about how to move our in-person programs into virtual programs. I mean, obviously video games are an easy way to do yeah. online programming, but a lot of people are finding ways where you can build digital escape rooms or oh. are I've been doing uh, virtual game nights at Naperville where we play group games that work well in online spaces that a lot of people can play at once. So doing things like categories or memory games, taking some roll and write board games actually translate well into online spaces because the people who are playing just need their player sheet and a writing utensil Mm -hmm. and the person running the game can show the cards on the screen. So everybody's finding new ways to do stuff virtually, which is great. Yeah, I love to see librarians and libraries kind of shifting quickly, really, considering how much work goes into programs, the ability and the fact that librarians have shifted to virtual environments so fast will never not amaze me. Yeah, it's been amazing how quickly folks have been able to adapt and even some of the things that we're doing are we're reaching people that we weren't able to reach before too, which is kind of a silver lining. (laughs) Yeah, that's sort of magical. 
So let's talk about building a game collection. How how do you know or what criteria do you have for deciding if a game is worth adding to your collection? Sure. And this is going to be a little different, you know, from library to library, but sure. obviously yeah. everybody's main driving factor is going to be their budget. What's the game right. going to cost to get into the collection? And that's more than what it costs just to acquire the game. You've got time, you know, cataloging time, mm-hmm. tech services time, however you're going to prep that. If you're going to be buying box bands to keep everything contained in the box or bags that you need for components or sleeves Mm -hmm. that you're going to put on those cards. So cost is a huge factor for a lot of libraries who are highly budget concerned. There's also the popularity and demand of a game. If it's, you know, a tried and true game, something like Ticket to Ride or Carcassonne, a lot of those are no brainers to add to a collection because they're more well-known titles. Mm -hmm. If you're getting into more hobby or enthusiast games, something like Wingspan or Eclipse or Scythe, those are, the cost is going to be higher, but if the demand is there in your community, that's something you're going to want to look at too. The ease of replacing the pieces. Mm -hmm. If it's a game that's out of print and you want to have the exact pieces that go with that game, some of those are going to be harder to replace. But if you have the ability to 3D print pieces, or if you're okay with just swapping in alternative pieces, then that's going to open you up to more games. There's also the size, the physical size of the game. Some games come in huge boxes like Gloomhaven or Thunderstone Quest. Like These are massive boxes you might not want those on your shelf. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the scope of the game. A lot of, there's new uh, legacy games coming out where the players are destroying cards or adding stickers to components of the game. So those types of games don't always work well in a library setting where replayability is a big factor because we want these games to circulate to more than one group or one person. Yeah. So are there some kind of tried and true favorites? I think some of the core beginner games, I guess, like things like Ticket to Ride, Carcassonne, Settlers of Catan, sure. just Catan now. Oh. Those are a lot of the games that are like household gaming titles that you can look at. Mm-hmm. But there are also a lot of new games that have brought more people into gaming. Uh, Wingspan has been huge with growing the community. It's reached out to a lot more people. And so that's a, a big title right now that you may be interested interested in, even though it's not one of the uh, longer running games. It was just published at the beginning of last year. Oh, that's new. So that is kind of leads into my next question is how, I mean, you are a gamer, so you're involved in the world, but how do you find out about new games or like what trends are happening in games? Like what style of game is the next on the frontier? And do you... I mean, I know collection development is never really if you had to choose between one, but do you tend to go for classics or for newer stuff? For me, with the collection I have at Naperville, I tend to go for classics because my collection is is more focused with kids. So we're mm-hmm. looking at things that are going to be building skills and that parents are going to recognize because parent buy-in is a big deal with getting yeah. kids to play games. If you're serving a more, if you're serving an adult community that mm-hmm has an interest in games, then you can go for those newer titles that are like the hot titles. But for finding out about games, go to your local, you know, your friendly local game shop and see what's on the shelf. And they often have newsletters where they're going to post what they have that's new. Um, Checking out some of the groups on Facebook, the the GameRT group is League of Librarian Gamers. 
There are also groups like Board Game Spotlight that announces a lot of new games, and there's a lot of friendly discussion that happens there. Board Game Geek is a website, it's like a database really, of board games and includes all kinds of information about the publisher, the type of game it is, Mm -hmm. the number of players, all kinds of data that librarians love. Yeah. (laughs) And you can also connect directly with publishers. A lot of board game publishers have newsletters that you can sign up for. And so if you have some favorites, sign up for their newsletters and you're always going to see what they've got that's coming out. There are also tons and tons of board game content writers out there, Mm -hmm. Uh, reviewers, some of my favorites like Eric from What's Eric Playing or the crew over at Girls Game Shelf. There are podcasts like The Five By. They do five-minute snippets, five games, five minutes for all of their episodes. Mm -hmm. And there are uh, How to Play videos. Rodney at Watch It Played is one of my favorites. And then there's Stephanie at Dibs on Blue. She does How to Play videos in American Sign Language. So that opens it up to a whole a whole new group of folks. So yeah. And before anyone who's listening panics, I mean, <laughs> all of all of this information will be in the show notes, all these game titles and resources, you'll be able to refer back. So yeah, and I think one of my favorite places, though, it may be harder for libraries to send folks there is going to game conventions like Gen Con or Origins, mm-hmm. PAX Unplugged. They're the trade floors there. It, it's one of the best places to see what people are playing and what's coming out and just kind of being in the environment is a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it wasn't that long ago when librarians thought it would be crazy to go to something like Comic-Con and now we're all over that. So yeah, definitely. And Gen Con actually does, um, Gen Con does have a trade day where they have sessions that are put on by libraries and educators. So there is a day for us where you can go and learn about how to use games in your in your library, which is great. <laughs> I love it. I love librarians taking over the world. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every possible world. So your collection in Naperville, you, you deal with kids' games. Mm-hmm. But can you talk a little bit about collecting for different ages or you know how you decide whether something will go in the adult collection or the youth collection or yeah definitely i mean you can look at games the same way that we would evaluate books and mm-hmm. looking at the content and the complexity and and how we make the decisions and what collections those go in mm-hmm. a lot of people are familiar with the ratings that come on video games that are used to determine age appropriateness and board games do come with an age recommendation but those are based on policy from the Consumer Product Safety Commission, where they're looking at the components of the games and considering things like, are the pieces sharp or are the pieces tiny? Is someone going to swallow this or cut themselves on it? So when you're looking at the age ratings on board games, definitely keep that in mind because the age rating may have nothing to do with the content or complexity of a game. Mm -hmm. In order to get ratings for lower age levels, there's a lot more testing that has to be done and paid for. So Mm. smaller publishers aren't necessarily going to do that. So you might see more games that have that 14 plus rating on it simply because it hasn't gone through the safety testing. Mm. But you can look at things like the content. Is it Cards Against Humanity where it's definitely going to be adult? Or are you looking at, you know, games from uh, HABA are children's games. The audience is for kids. So those would go in a children's collection. 
WordGameGeek also has a complexity rating system that you mm-hmm. can use. It determines how difficult a game is on a scale of one to five. Oh, that's so convenient. if you're if you're looking at complexity, yeah, you can use that scale in combination with looking at the content to determine which collection it would fit best in. And some might be good for both collections. If you have your children's and adult in separate areas, you might have two copies of Ticket to Ride because you have one in children's and one in adults. With libraries that I've talked to, that's one of the games that circulates the most, no matter what collection it's in. Mm -hmm. So it, it might benefit being in both collections. What do you think is so appealing about that game? Just that people, everybody knows it and so they're psyched to play it or... Everybody knows it. It's a title that sometimes, you know, even if you're not into gaming, it's a title that is recognizable and trains are fun. Um, (laughs) And it's very easy to teach, which is one of the great things about it. It's easy to teach. It's easy to get into. It's it's a great entry to gaming for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. Can you describe it a little bit, I guess, in case folks don't know Ticket to Ride? So for Ticket to Ride, in the base game, it's a map of the United States with various train routes on it. And everybody's trying to use their little colored train pieces to connect cities in routes. So everybody gets Mm -hmm. route cards and you're trying to build as many of your routes as you can. And there's extra points for building the longest route of trains that you have. So everybody's placing their trains on the board and you're connecting cities. It's great for becoming familiar with geography. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a, it's just a fun little game. (laughs) Developing a love of infrastructure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm thinking about the difference between like a board game, like Ticket to Ride, and then something like that's more card based, something like Magic the Gathering or Pokemon or something where, sure, but like part of the fun of playing it is that you're building and building your own set of things. How do you navigate that kind of stuff? Or do you kind of stay away from those sorts of games? I stay away from collectible games because they are, the nature of them is that you're kind of collecting to build your own decks for those games, like Mm -hmm. uh, Pokemon or Magic the Gathering. But you can have clubs for those things, certainly, Mm -hmm. uh, and use programming to augment your collection for, for that kind of experience. Pokemon League is immensely popular and kids bring their own decks. We do have library in-house use decks. If you've never played Pokemon, you want to play it, we have the starter decks that you can use. Mm -hmm. They don't circulate. That is one way that you can still offer that kind of experience, those collectible trading card games. But we wouldn't put them in a circulating collection. So speaking of circulating, I know right now you're not circulating Mm -hmm. games on account of a pandemic. So do you ever circulate board games? At 95th Street, we have not yet. We do have, normally we have a shelf in the library that's an in-house use shelf. So in the children's department, you know, anybody can come and pull a game off that shelf and use it in the library. And then we have a collection for our programming that I will bring Mm -hmm. out for game nights and International Games Week. A circulating proposal is something that uh, will be in the works. Yeah. I'm just imagining um, keeping track of pieces and how you manage that. Yeah, and that is a big concern for for lots of folks. Uh, When I was interviewing librarians, game librarians in the Chicagoland area at the beginning of the year, I came across a dozen different methods that people use for tracking. So some libraries will have the circulation staff count all the pieces as soon as the game is returned. 
Some libraries have the games when they come back in, they'll go directly to that collection manager and the collection manager will count them. Mm-hmm. Some libraries weigh the boxes. They'll weigh them oh. when they're checked out and they weigh them when they come back in. And if there's a big discrepancy, they'll look for something. And then some places just rely on their patrons to tell them if a significant piece was missing. One of the nice things about board games, like, yeah, some of them have all these pieces and you need a lot of them to play. But if one piece goes missing, it's not going to wreck the board game. Right. Like you could still play Monopoly without the thimble. Right. And and a lot of these things are so easily replaceable, especially if you've got a 3D printer at your library. There mm-hmm. are a lot of free files out there for a lot of common board games. So you can print a new piece or just replace it with anything. Like for example, Ticket to Ride, you know, if you lost one of the red trains, you could use a little wooden block to act as a train. I mean, you could substitute other things. We also like to cannibalize pieces from other games. So if you had two copies of Ticket to Ride and one of them was ruined, don't chuck the whole thing. Keep the pieces that are still worth using and then you can use those to put into other games later. Yeah, just be efficient and smart about it. The librarian specialty. (laughs) So if folks want to start a Gabe's collection at their library, where do you think they should start? You know, how can they figure out, I guess, what kind of audience is there and what kind of games they should get for them? Yeah, I mean, definitely talk with Mm -hmm. your fellow librarians, not just at your own library, but kind of in your service area and talk to your community, find out what they want. If it's possible for you to do a survey, do that and see if that's something your community is looking for. And Talk to everybody at your library who is going to be handling the games through their circulation process as you're building your best practices. You know, don't get stuck on a specific way that you want to do something before you've talked to circulation and tech services to see if it'll work to do it that way. Because you want everybody to be on board with what you're doing. Uh So include all those folks. (laughs) Yeah. And as far as funding, the Games and Gaming Roundtable does have a grant that we do every year. We just started it last year. So we'll be opening up applications again in January. So check out for things like grants that will make it easier to get a budget that works for you to build your collection too. Yeah, that's excellent. We talked about resources a little bit, but you also are a resource creator. So can you talk about your website and your podcast? Yeah, I co-host a podcast called Playability, and it's an interview-based podcast where we look at the intersection of accessibility and gameplay, specifically with tabletop gaming. So we've talked to people who make custom player sheets for Dungeons & Dragons that are easier for people to read uh, if they have dyslexia, or what kind of thoughts are go into the design process to make games accessible for people with colorblindness, mm-hmm. things like that. And then I also have my website to play as human, where I create game lists, I have a bibliography about gaming and libraries. So if you're looking for texts to support the creation of your collection, definitely consult that there's a lot of great stuff there. And then I just write about general gaming content, interviewing people in the hobby and and things like that. And that's at uh, toplayashuman.com. Awesome. Well, so that's where folks can find you if they have more questions. Definitely. And any parting thoughts, any favorite game stores you want to shout out or favorite games you think people need to be on the lookout for? My favorite game store is the Wandering Dragon Game Shop in Plainfield, Illinois. Kevin and Laura there 
are amazing. If you are anywhere near the area, go check them out. Their space is amazing. Their staff are great. I love them. And I guess for games I'm playing right now, my husband and I are playing Forgotten Waters, one of the uh, Crossroads games from Plaid Hat, which is a lot of fun. And we're trekking our way through the seventh continent as well. So we like doing campaign style games that last over several sessions. Yeah. So that's what we've been up to. I feel like folks who are getting tired of jigsaw puzzles should consider these campaign type games to fill their COVID days. Definitely. And storytelling, most games have, you know, you can work in how they're doing storytelling, but I love games with explicit storytelling mechanics, like these campaign style games where you're playing over several sessions and building up a story. It's a lot of fun. I love it. And that is totally in line with uh, our library's love of story. (laughs) Definitely. Beautiful. All right. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for chatting and for sharing your knowledge. I'm so happy that you were able to share stuff with us. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I could talk about it forever. So (laughs) thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Professional development is super important for library staff, but finding the time and the funds is real tricky. Booklist webinars are a great way to squeeze some continuing education into your busy schedule. Each free one-hour webinar covers something staff can take right into their work. Like what? How's about picture books, or sci-fi fantasy books, or craft books, or book group picks, or library management, or library reads? So many topics covered each in one convenient hour. Register to watch the webinar live, or to be notified when the video is up in the archives. All free! All just one hour! Perfect for those days when you only have enough time off the service desk to eat a sad sandwich in your office. Find upcoming webinars and archives at booklistonline.com webinars. Hi, I'm Sarah Hunter, editor of the Books for Youth and Graphic Novel sections at Booklist, and I'm here with Susan McGuire. Susan, why don't you tell me about some of the books you've been reading lately? Sarah, thank you so much for having me on the Shelf Care podcast. It's one of my favorite listens. Okay. (laughs) So... Like a lot of people during this pandemic, it's been difficult to read. So I feel a little bit, I don't feel this in the moment, but in the in a broad sense, I feel lucky that my job is to read, or part of my job is to read and review books. So I sort of have to do it. So I have to force myself to experience the wonderfulness that is reading, even though it is often difficult. But there have been a couple of books that I've read recently that brought me joy. So the first book I want to talk about comes out soonish. What does time mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's Survival of the Thickest by Michelle Buteau, who folks may know from her stand-up comedy. And she she was in that Netflix rom-com, Always Be My Maybe, with Ali Wong. Mm-hmm. And I think actually that her book is a good read-alike for Ali Wong because they're both great, hilarious stand-up comedians who write very much in the voice that you hear when they're doing stand-up. So Survival of the Thickest comes out in December from galleries. Um, And she is from New Jersey. And if anyone's seen her stand-up, you know she has a New Jersey accent. And like somehow the New Jersey accent comes through in her writing, which I (laughs) appreciated as someone from New Jersey. But she talks about growing up with a Haitian father and a Jamaican mother. And like one of my favorite stories is talking about her wedding and she's married to a Dutch guy who has like a small European family. And Michelle has like an archbishop or a, a 
cardinal or some some high-ranking Haitian Catholic is in her family. And so they had this massive Caribbean, New Jersey Catholic wedding, and it kind of got out of control. It was very fun. And so she she talks about fun things and like her, the foibles of her love life before she met her husband. And she also talks about her fertility struggles. She went through like several rounds of IVF. And I know like in a lot of memoirs, that is like the serious chapter of the book, but it still maintains like her tone, you know, of her like inner monologue where she's going through this like physical and emotional distress and everyone's just talking to her like it's normal. And she's like, Bleh. so it's a great, it's, it feels very like New Jersey to me where like, it's not soft, but it's gentle. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Like it's, it's hard, but warm anyway. So, so if you need a laugh, uh, survival of the thickest by Michelle Buteau and the other book I want to talk about is sort of timely in many ways. Um, it actually it came out in June, so I guess in that way it's not timely. But as of this recording, yesterday was the premiere of this season's Bachelorette, which is always an important time in my life um, as a person who watches garbage TV. And you know, I've been watching The Bachelor from like the beginning when it started in like 2000 back before people were like influencers. And so, so the book I want to talk about commemorates that and was also kind of a bright spot in my early pandemic reading experience. Uh, it's called One to Watch by Kate Stamen London. And that came out in June from Dial Books and it's a debut, which is always very fun. And it's about a gal who's plus size fashion blogger, fashion influencer who sort of rails against the bachelor industrial complex and the producers are like well if you're so mad about it why don't you be the next bachelorette so uh it had like for those who for people who watch the bachelor it has like a lot of the hallmarks like the cast of dudes that she's like that are her potential suitors runs the gamut from like people who are definitely not there for the right reasons <laughs> to people who have their walls up and like all of the amazing tropes that make watching that show so fun and they travel to all kinds of different places and they uh, have ridiculous stupid dates but one thing I also really liked about it is that it kind of captures that bachelor nation vibe and the way that the show has grown to be sort of an interactive experience like there will be in between chapters there will be like twitter threads of people who are live tweeting the show and there's like this group text thing that has its own sort of little subplot going on that's really cute and like media coverage of the show. So that is like the icing for Bachelor fans. But I think even if you don't like online dating shows, it's still a really fun chiclet book. And I know chiclet is like a problematic term for a lot of people, including me. <laughs> but it is still a genre I really enjoy. Like Romantic comedies that are more focused on like the single woman's journey, but the romance is still definitely there and they're funny. And like I said, a bright, a bright spot in my early pandemic reading. One to watch, Kate's Damon London. And it came out in June, so y'all can read it now. That's awesome. Thanks. 
I understand you also had some positive reading experiences, some PREs. I have. I also have had trouble reading. All I really want to do right now is like eat too much food and watch emotional baby food on TV. Oh. Like I don't want anything that's too hard to deal with. Emotional baby food. Very little drama. Like it's a lot of actual food shows, like Great British Baking Show, Mm -hmm. of course. I watch that a lot. Basically anything where the emotional tenor is like right in the middle. Yeah. Like it maybe spikes a little bit at the end, but then you know you're going to have a real gentle landing at the end. That's basically all I can deal with. But there have been a few bright spots in my reading life lately too. I read... The Magic Fish recently, which is a graphic novel by Chung Le Nguyen. I think Ronnie talked about that. Everyone's talking about this book because it's so good. I love it. So it's three intertwined stories that sort of talks about how folktales and fairy tales change and based on like the time that you're reading them in or the place where you're reading them. And there are similarities across cultures this particular book plays a lot with like Cinderella stories. There's like some Cinderella and some Little Mermaid fairy tales all working in the background. And it's all around the story of the main character, Tian, who is trying to figure out how to tell his mom that he's gay. And his mom, who's a refugee from Vietnam, trying to live her life in America and take care of her son and then also balance the distance with her own family and her mother's declining health back in Vietnam. So they communicate through these stories that they read to each other. And the illustrations for each of those stories shift based on the person who's telling them and the cultural context they heard that story in for the first time. So there's like this really neat thing that he does with fashion. So one of the storytellers is the mother's aunt. And because of when she was hearing this folktale, the illustrations feature like a more traditional style of costume on the characters. But then Mm -hmm. another character maybe heard the story that they were telling in like the cultural context of the 1920s. And so the costumes had this like 1920s feel. So there's this real subtle shift in like cultural markers and illustrations that don't really get addressed directly in the text at all, but it it really carries through like the texture of the artwork and it's really, really smart and beautiful. And the dresses are like really pretty to look at, (laughs) Um, which is, you know, one of the excellent, excellent features of graphic novels is just like, yeah. Is there anything better than just looking at really beautiful art? I don't know. Probably not. No. And it kind of is a good reminder when people say graphic novels are somehow dumbing down the reading experience. Another book that sort of did a similar thing that I read recently that's not actually coming out until January is the Raconteur's Commonplace book, which is a real fancy sounding title. Yes. Uh, it's by Kate Milford. It's part of her Nags Peak series. It's not really a series. They're like interconnected stories that take place in the same fictional land. Um, And this book is a book of folktales that one of the characters in her earlier books reads. (laughs) Oh, Uh, But there are folktales that like make up like they're like a cultural touchstone for a lot of the people 
in the other books. And Mm -hmm. these stories also sort of like echo and overlap and change a little bit. They're like common characters and like objects, places. I mean, all of the stories individually are just really fun to read and they're varied in their genre and voice um, and like atmosphere. But all those like little interconnecting places like add up to something really interesting and revealing about the world. So you can read the individual stories and like the frame narrative without a lot of context from the other stories. And it's like a pretty enjoyable reading experience. But if you are familiar with the other stories in the series, there's like a lot, a lot to think about. It's fun. That's that's just like me and the Bachelor book. <laughs> <laughs> and then if we're going to talk about pretty things to look at, uh, I read yeah. a picture book a little while ago for a webinar I did called The Blue House by Phoebe Wall, which is about a boy and his dad who have to move out of their beloved house and find a new house. And it's about mm. sort of like grieving for a place. And sh- her artwork is really warm and atmospheric like you have a really solid sense of the people who live in this house based on all the like little objects and things on the walls and Mm -hmm. like the textiles in their house and like it's so warm and cozy and like you understand things about the family that lives in that house based on what it looks like and part of the reason I liked it so much apart from it just being beautiful to look at is that she's from Bellingham which is where my grandparents lived Mm -hmm. and I've spent a lot of time there and there's something so evocative about that part of the country that she captures just in like the neighborhood oh wow that made me feel extremely extremely homesick (laughs) and since I can't travel to see my family reading that book made me feel like good and sad (laughs) yeah yeah sad in a good way and that's a good reminder of how really how sophisticated picture books are and yeah how much they do you know to help us develop all different kinds of literacy skills speaking of literacy skills I understand that you are raising a reader right now okay Juniper is my almost nine month old daughter who's the cutest baby in Chicago she is super cute. She is 100% a pandemic baby because she has only existed under <laughs> the pandemic conditions. Wow. Uh, <laughs> it should surprise no one that I really love reading to her. And she's really started to get into books, but mostly by eating them since she can't read yet. And she <laughs> loves putting anything in her mouth. So yeah. she has really enjoyed quite a few books that we have around that she just like gnaws on constantly she devours them she devours them she enjoys consuming fine literature that's what I like telling people so she really loves this one book called baby goat (laughs) chronicle has this like series of board books they're I don't know maybe three three inches square and there's like a little finger puppet on the last page which is the main character of the book and her favorite is baby goat It is the most chewed up book in our entire house. And we have two (laughs) others. She loves it when I read Baby Dragon to her. Oh. Um, So I try, and I actually enjoy reading Baby Dragon. And fun fact, I did not realize until much later that the illustrator of (laughs) Baby Dragon is Victoria Ying, who I interviewed for a panel like (laughs) two months ago. Oh, I realized when I picked up Baby Dragon and I saw the cover, I was like, oh, I've talked to this lady before. She's written a graphic novel. 
So congratulations to Victoria Ying <laughs> on illustrating one of my baby's favorite board books. Two generations of hunters are <laughs> dazzled. Um, the other book she really likes is The Grumpy Ladybug by Eric Carl. I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It's about... I, don't, I mean, I know others of his, of course. You know, it's a grouchy ladybug, not the grumpy ladybug. Okay. But the grouchy ladybug is cranky in the morning and wants to fight another ladybug over some aphids and wants to fight the other ladybug, but then decides that the ladybug is too little and then goes to find a bigger thing to fight. And it's a book about like the passage of time. So there are like 12 little short flaps where he meets like bigger and bigger animals Mm -hmm. and decides that they're too small. And I remember really loving this book when I was a kid or maybe when my brother was a kid, because I think it came out when I was a little bit older. But now I realize it is extremely repetitive. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) And like repetitive for six things is fine, but repetitive for 12 things is like kind of boring. So she really likes chewing on that one. And I just let her go to town on it. You know, you don't have to approve of everything she reads. You just have to let her read it. (laughs) That's right. Or chew on it. It's a powerful parenting lesson. Yeah. Right. And then I've also... I mean, I really enjoy reading to her, obviously, even though she doesn't really understand it, which means that most of the books I read to her are books that I just want to read because I like them. (laughs) And that means that I've been revisiting a lot of my childhood favorites that I haven't really thought about in a long time. And one of them is a book that's out of print now. It's called As I Was Crossing Boston Common. It came out in like the 70s, maybe? I don't remember. But my husband found an old library copy on the internet when I told him my like vague memory about it and I've really enjoyed reading it to her it's by Norma Farber and Arnold Lobel of Frog and Toad fame oh Frog and Toad yeah and it's a it's this like really ridiculous alphabet book about like a little turtle who's crossing Boston Common and there's just this parade of unusual animals that go by so the first one is Anguantibo which is a type of lemur and then there's like a narwhal and a fennec fox and it goes through all of these very unusual creatures like a gallywasp which is a lizard and a xenopus oh. which is a toe that's x a toad and it's really fun to read out loud because the words are really complicated and the illustrations are delightful and i remember like every word from when i was a kid um, and this mm-hmm. is one, even though it's probably the most raggedy book that we have because it's a used library copy, yeah. it's the one that I'm like keeping the farthest away from her mouth because I like it so much. And because it's a used library copy, so probably. <laughs> that too. <laughs> um, I love it. And I am so excited for her first word to be Xenopus because you think she's like not <laughs> understanding the words, but then all of a sudden uh-huh, uh-huh. she'll just come out with it. So, yeah. I want to talk about one more book that I really loved lately. I stayed up to finish it last night, which I don't usually do uh, because I'm so tired because I have a nine month old baby, but I just finished last night reading Dear Justice by Nick Stone, which is a sequel to Dear Martin. It's about Juan who is in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And he's writing letters to his friend, Justice, who is the main character of Dear Martin about how he got to prison and how he feels about being there and the events leading up to where he finds himself in his life right now. And the voice that she cultivates in those letters is just so strong. 
and so vivid. It's like real people are actually talking to me in a book and it feels so much like an actual voice as opposed to something an author is writing, which is really rare. Like the ability to capture a strong voice like that, I think is a really singular skill. Kind of magical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that was part of what made this book so hard to put down for me. Uh, The other thing about it is there's like a lot of tension leading up to the end because you're really hoping that Quan can successfully make his case to get out of prison. Um, mm-hmm. I won't spoil it here, but I will say that's a very satisfying ending. And I felt a lot of tension in my heart when I was reading it. And when you finally get to the point where you find out what happens, I felt like a lot of feelings. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, we read so much in these jobs that sometimes it's hard to like feel a lot of feelings about a book. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen for me very often anymore, which is a little sad. Uh, but I felt yeah. like so many feelings about this book uh, because she did such a great job with it. Feelings approved. Yeah, totally. And then you feel all those big feelings and you have to go watch baking shows mm-hmm. to recover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But look, we're all coping in different ways. And eating a lot of cookies. Yeah. Well, Susan, thank you so much (laughs) for being here with me today on Shelf Care. Thank you for having me. My podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This has been, gosh, a delight, a delightful (laughs) surprise. Okay, bye. Alas, that's it for this episode of Bookless Shelf Care, the podcast. Thank you all for listening, and thank you to Rebecca Strang for talking to me about games and libraries, and to Sarah Hunter for chatting with me about all manner of book consumption. Golly, that was fun. Once again, you can find everything that we talked about in the show notes on booklistonline.com shelf hyphen care. Oh, and trivia-wise, the Neil Simon play that tells the story of two retired vaudeville partners is The Sunshine Boys. Was that a movie with Matthew Broderick? Or was that every other Neil Simon play? Anyway, that movie probably hadn't come out by the time this trivia set was written. Until next time, happy reading! Happy reading!